century number 10 for Brendan Taylor. Adams got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada, we're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Atlanta. Go on, take it. Deep in Wigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates. Eric Coley cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the DNet Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast with me, Dean Duplessis. And as we always do at the top of the show, just a reminder to you that if you're subscribing to the first time and if you'd like to hear more interviews with the likes of Kumar Sangakara, A.B. de Villiers, Sean Pollock, David Gower, Michael Holding, Andy Flower... Then uh, you search for the Dean at Stumps podcast on your favorite podcast feed. So be it the likes of Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, Google, any of those. Uh, you then subscribe to the podcast and away you go. You can listen to some really good stuff. Now, it gives me the greatest amount of pleasure to welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast one of my all-time favorite. I love him on radio. He's just as good on television, but to me, he has that slight edge on radio. He uh, is from Trinidad in the West Indies, Fazir Muhammad. Fazir, it is so, so great to have you on the show. Thank you for being a part of Dean at Stumps. Dean, it's a privilege, and uh, given uh, the, the illustrious names that you just mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm humbled uh, to, to be actually on, on your podcast today. Oh, no, no, believe me, it's, uh, the pleasure is, uh, is all mine. So we're going to be talking about the, as people, this new term that people like to use, current settings, <laughs> very shortly. And of course, those current settings are that test cricket, thankfully, has returned. Uh, and we are currently obs- uh, observing England uh, hosting the West Indies in a three-test match series, which is absolutely fantastic. So uh, we'll get into that in a bit. I would imagine, Fazir, you must be so happy with the way the maturity and the consistency uh, that the West Indies displayed in that first test match. Uh, Very happy and very surprised as well, because uh, our record uh, in England has been uh, the best. uh, The West Indies, the last time they would have won the opening test of a series in England, takes us back 20 years to the year 2000. We haven't won a test series in England since 1988, which takes us back 32 years. And yes, there have been encouraging signs, but uh, there's always that concern about the West Indies falling back into those uh, bad habits and uh, maybe frittering away an opportunity. And the fact that they were able to hold on from a bad start on the last day of that first test match and were able to pull it off and uh, to take that lead in the series uh, was, as I said, uh, a bit surprising, but but very pleasantly so. I think that's a, the, the difference to me, is that the fact that the West Indies were actually able to recover from being 27 for three to then reach that, what potentially could have been a tricky total, that to me is a difference. You know, in times gone by, we've seen the West Indies get themselves into to positions where they should have won test matches, but due to the fact that they wanted to express themselves like the West Indies do in a very aggressive, flamboyant manner, that that normally leads to their downfall. But we saw such maturity from players who, and I say this with the greatest of respect, we would never have expected it from, given the fact that Jermaine Blackwood has entertained so many people with his aggression and stroke play, but he really knuckled down and played one of the more mature innings I've seen in Test cricket, let alone the West Indies, for a long time in the way that he skillfully manipulated the, uh, the West Indies towards that total. You're absolutely right, Dean, because when you look at the overall numbers of, of this West Indies team, no one averages 35 with the bat. 
and to have a situation where someone like a Jermaine Blackwood would be able to deliver. He is that type of player. He's an aggressive player. He'll always give the bowler a chance. You never know, maybe the first ball that he faces in the second test, he'll get out playing a poor shot. But that's the type of player he is. It did work well for him. He's been working very hard on his game to get back in the West Indies team. He was helped by the absence of Darren Bravo and Shimron Hetmeyer, who chose not to tour England because of their concerns of COVID-19. And he's taken his chance. So, so all power to him. Are there similarities between Ricardo Powell and Jermaine Blackwood? For some reason, the one reminds me of the other. Very similar in, a, in certain, t- certain ways. Well, they're both from Jamaica, by the way, Ricardo oh, Powell, right. uh, who burst onto the scene in the late 1990s and was selected for the World Cup of 1999, got a match-winning 100 uh, against India in a, in a tournament final in Singapore that later that's during that same time. Uh, but uh, I would suggest that, that Blackwood has a, has a bit more steely resolve. Uh, Ricardo Powell had all the shots, uh, had, had the aggression, uh, but I think he, he didn't really build his game. He didn't seem capable of developing his game to allow him to develop all the skills because he was a very talented young man, very talented cricketer, but didn't really take advantage of all his attributes by knuckling down, as you and as you know very well, Dean. When it comes to Test cricket, especially, it requires long periods of concentration. It's not just about shot making, and certainly Blackwood is a shot maker. Uh, but often he'd blot his copybook even after getting an excellent hundred or an excellent innings uh, by playing a poor shot or rash shot. For for example, even in the first Test match, he was dismissed twice, caught at mid off, and and for top line batsmen to be dismissed, caught at mid off. Uh, it's really not the done thing. But the fact is, he did get that match winning 95 in the second innings. Uh, so in, in, in making those comparisons, uh, I think you're on, on the right track to a certain degree, except that I think Blackwood has, has developed a lot more than Ricardo Powell could have. Yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and then um, we're going to get back to that, to this current series now, Fazir. But I'd very much like you, please, because there's not many listeners who actually know a great deal about you. They hear your voice on television. You remind a lot of people of the late, great Tony Cozier uh, in, in the way that you speak that same very measured uh, tone of yours. And, you know, you you have a, a, an incredible, vast knowledge of the game. And like Tony Cozier, you never played cricket at any level, which includes me as well. A lot of us uh, have had that. Where, what is your first memories of Test cricket as a little boy? My very first memories of Test cricket were watching it on television, uh, a Test match in 1972 uh, between the West Indies and New Zealand. Uh, That was a series in which uh, all five Test matches ended in draws. Probably not the most exciting of Test cricket, but at uh, at, uh, the age of just seven, you're not really thinking in terms of all the nuances and the context. You're just watching cricket and you're, you're, you're growing to appreciate that this thing is a big deal. Uh, because my, my, my dad was a, was an avid and a, and a very competitive club cricketer as a left-arm spinner. And, and because I would have grown up in the game, just going around with him, uh, seeing him uh, play cricket, donning his whites and, and play cricket somewhere. And actually, as I got a bit older, 11, 12 years old, uh, I was the scorer for his local club. So I would learn a lot about the game, read almost everything that came in front of me about the game and, and indeed um, the, the earliest books I would have read at home would have not been your, your, your traditional uh, kids uh, 
story books and so on would have been books about George Headley and Frank Worrell and some of the great West Indies cricketers and indeed great great cricketers from other countries and, and therefore my my knowledge of the game would have started to develop from from that point so it, it my my knowledge that you, you talked about and my, my, my understanding of the game it was really about spending a lot of time reading and learning about the game even as I was doing scoring and, and following the game uh, with my father and, and watching more and more on television uh, but uh, my, my first memory of actually watching Test Cricket would have been 1972 off the television the first time live would have been in 1976 at the Queen's Park Oval in Trinidad uh, where India were playing uh, the West Indies, they were the visitors. And my very, very first memory walking into the ground, up into the stands and looking out onto the field was Michael Holding reaching the top of his mark, ready to run into bull to Sunil Gavaskar. Goodness me, that is phenomenal. So two greats of the game squaring up and uh, and dealing with one another. And I wonder who won that contest eventually. Did Holding get the better of Gavaskar or did the grit and determination that Gavaskar had see him through to a big total? Well, Gavaskar prevailed. He got 156 and indeed uh, celebrated as the original little master. And of his 34 test hundreds, 13 came against the West Indies. And uh, that was, was really uh, a purple patch. He was enormously admired uh, in, in the Caribbean, especially in Trinidad and Tobago, which has a significantly large East Indian population like neighboring Guyana on the South American mainland. And uh, he was really in the midst of that purple patch. He got that 100, then in a back-to-back test in Trinidad, he got another 100, when famously they chased over 400 uh, to win. So that was an occasion when, for for Michael Holding and all the West Indies bowlers, it was really tough taking on Gavaskar. That is astonishing, you know, Fazir, because we, we've, uh, and I mean, I suppose it has been proven that many players of the of the subcontinent are a bit vulnerable against the genuine pace. So Michael Holding certainly was genuine pace. And, uh, you know, Joel Garner, Colin Croft, and then Patrick Patterson was very quick as well. So many West Indies. And then, of course, your Jeff Thompsons and various bowlers around the world, Dennis Lilly. And and they certainly did get the better of the players of the subcontinent, especially when they went on tour, because, you know, your Australian pitchers had a bit more pace and bounce. I'm sure back in the 1970s, the pitchers in the Caribbean had a lot more to, to offer for the, the quicker bowlers. And yet you just produce this incredible statistics, uh, statistic of Sonio Gavaskar scoring 13 of his 34 test hundreds against a genuine pace attack. So just goes to show that, you know, everybody talks about Sachin Tendulkar who could hook and pull pretty well and who had a good technique against fast bowlers. Virat Kohli, very similar. But Sonny, Sonny Gavaskar was right up there as well. He, he was probably the pioneer, wasn't he? Indeed he was. And, and when you put it in, in, in the context of, of an Indian team that would have been struggling against genuine quick bowling uh, and you have Gavaskar averaging over 50 in test cricket, it's, it's very important that we contextualize these things, Dean. And as a student of the game yourself, you appreciate that when you're, you're playing in an era where, where almost every other team uh, includes world-class fast bowlers or, or world-class cricketers generally, then you value those runs even more. So when you look at the career of someone like a Gavaskar from 1971, where he actually started against the West Indies in the Caribbean, scoring over 700 runs in his debut series in just four matches, and by the time he had finished up in 1987 uh, with, with that record and an averaging over 50 during that period of so many world-class cricketers, uh, for, for many, he remains the original little master. Mm. 
I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. So that was where you saw that was your first experience of live test match cricket. Now, obviously, in those days, there would have been a lot of radio commentary in the West Indies. Were there certain radio commentators you used to either you know sort of in bed at night try and copy and and emulate? I certainly used to do that, but I did it in the classroom and not the bedroom and got into a lot of trouble for doing that. But would you were, were there certain commentators you would look up to and try and hope that one day you'd like to emulate these commentators in the commentary box or did you initially feel well one day I would actually like to represent the West Indies as a left arm spinner or a top order batsman well, well certainly the, the, at that age you know in my case for example you're not thinking well I'm, I'm go- I want to be a comedy actually in my, in my case as you mentioned correctly you want to play for the West Indies first you want to play for Trinidad and Tobago yeah. then play for the West Indies uh, even though I was a, a natural right hander because my father was a left hander he taught me to bowl and bat left-handed, so I became a left-arm spinner and a lower left-handed batsman of no particular merit, so I never really had any aspirations or any real chance uh, of making it to the highest level, even though I, I desired to do so. Uh, and in the end, as, as time went on and you listened to, to more about the game, you learned to appreciate the skills and the quality of a Tony Cozier. He it was certainly the distinctive voice of Westby's cricket, pretty much the Gary Sobers. Of, of, of cricketing coverage because of his vast knowledge and his vast repertoire and the fact that he covered uh, almost everything about the game, radio, television, writing, everything about it. So you, you would hear that, uh, Tony Cozier almost as a matter of course whenever and wherever was cricket was played involving the West Indies, even our regional competition then known as the Shell Shield, you would hear Tony doing comments whenever about commentary whenever Barbados uh, his home island were involved against Trinidad and Tobago and so on. So, so you appreciated that. But I, I always recall the 1975-76 series in Australia where the West Indies lost 5-1. And because of the time difference, they, the matches would start at around 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening, uh, our time and finish at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was actually getting ready for, at that stage, what was known as my 11-plus examination. So going through the night, I would be listening to the cricket and uh, getting familiar with the voices of commentators like Alan McGilvery. And then when the West Indies went on to England, of course, the legendary John Arlott and so many other voices. So you, you got accustomed to, to these voices and these names from different parts of the world and their skill, and their, their ability to paint a picture from so many thousands of miles away. And, uh, of course, little did you know that at some point you, uh, well, you wouldn't be a part of uh, the likes of John Allotonet because obviously they were a bit older than us, but uh, eventually p- people who you would have listened to as you got a bit older, the likes of Jonathan Agnew, uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, various of the other summarizers, little did you know that one of these days you would actually be sharing the commentary box with them, be it with England touring the West Indies or vice versa as well. I never thought that would have would have happened. I think, as I said, at that stage, you're not thinking that you're going to follow in those footsteps. Although you admired it, you were more concerned with playing. But I always recall when I when I actually got my first opportunity to do international cricket. It was in 1992, the historic first visit uh, of South Africa for a one-day international. And uh, I was privileged to start my first tint of commentary sitting alongside Michael Holding, the same individual uh, who I saw running into ball to Sanu Gavaska. Uh, some some uh, 16 years earlier yeah. in 1976, and uh, indeed in in that commentary uh, panel was the likes of Sagarfield Sobers, Imran Khan was there as well, and I was absolutely absolutely overawed 
uh, by being in their presence and there were quite a bit of nerves and so on before you eventually settle down to, to do the job but it was it's, it's still now even today you you, you wonder you know is, is, it, is this real that you're you're able to be without any skill actually any playing skill in the game and especially in an era dominated by former players that you're still able to have a bit of a foothold to be able to interact in a game that you love with some of the greats of the game. Do you become a bit frustrated at times? Uh, because, I mean, yes, you've certainly had your fair share of success as you know, a commentator who's never played the game, and, and you have. You've been to quite a few, uh, you've travelled to quite a few tours, or you've been on tour and, and so on. But at times, is there still that frustration where you think, honestly, you know, I try my best. My knowledge is probably more superior than those who I'm commentating with. But just because this certain individual has taken 300 test wickets or scored 10,000 test runs, it's kind of as if they, they turn to me as a last resort, as opposed to picking me for what I'm capable of doing. Do you experience that or have you kind of got over that? I don't think I'll ever get over that, Dean. It, it, it is one of the realities of the modern environment. And I, I take nothing away from those who have achieved great things in the game or even played one or two matches and therefore qualify uh, in the eyes of, of, the, of the broadcasters and those who make those decisions. But I would be less than honest if I didn't say it was very frustrating because uh, you, you, you get the sense that uh, the, the environment is more and more dominated by the former players and, and don't get me wrong I appreciate that it's all driven uh, by, by viewership numbers and viewership demands and I know the viewers uh, seem to, uh, to be more inclined towards hearing from former players but uh, I think having listened to a, to a Tony Koza listened to a Reds Pereira listened to, to many others who never even played the game at, the, at, the, at any level far less the highest level and to listen to their appreciation of the game I think it's a, it's a, it's a bit one-eyed uh, to, to, to appreciate that, that only former players can comment knowledgeably on the game because that's simply not true. But it's one of the realities and I'm grateful that I've got the opportunity uh, to visit so many parts of the world, visiting Zimbabwe on a couple of occasions in 2017 and then for the ICC World Cup qualifiers in early 2018. Uh, so I, I can't complain. I've had more opportunities than I ever thought that I would have. But yes, it is frustrating uh, to be characterized as a non-cricketer in that sense. I'll tell you what, you use the expression one-eyed. Here's a little bit of pun for you. I think it's totally blind of, the, <laughs> of them to actually uh, not, not consider non-players. It, it's, I think they, at times, uh, as a blind person, I do you know, sort of look around and think uh, the people around me are the ones who are actually blind, not uh, realizing the potential of, of, the, uh, of people such as yourself, uh, the late Tony Cozier and, and many, many more, Neil Manthorpe, Harsha Bogley, you know, Natalie Germanis uh, from South Africa as well. I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, Fazia. that series of 1992. So that was now South Africa's first test match back from isolation. So obviously gone are the days of uh, the players who would have played South Africa's last test match in 1970. But it was still a formidable, it was an unknown, but at the same time formidable side intense in the sense of they had a, a fearsome pace attack as well. Not, not probably as well known as Kirtley Ambrose and Courtney Welsh, but a lot of people would have heard of Alan Donald because he obviously played in the World Cup of 92 and he played for Warwickshire. So although we had no internet, but news gets around it, it had a way of, of, of making its way around. Um, 
So now you are a part of this. And I want you to take us to the final day of the test match uh, in Barbados. So South Africa were on the verge of what would have been an incredible upset. Your first test match back after 20-odd years, and you're about to beat the mighty West Indies. But along came Kirtley Ambrose and Courtney Walsh and made sure that that didn't happen. When you arrived at the ground, was there still a sense that the West Indies would be able to pull off something very special, given the fact that, because remember, South Africa had only lost two wickets. So, you know, South Africa being able to still lose a test match or had a lot of people resign themselves to the fact that, oh, well, the West Indies are going to lose this one. Yeah, there, there was certainly that feeling. And just to put it in context properly, that, that first match that I talked about, uh, that I did commentary, was actually a one-day international yes, in Trinidad. Yes. Uh, those were the days because I was very new uh, in commentary that you didn't travel out of your territory. So I would have done just the one-day international so that were played at Queen's Park Oval, but I certainly had the opportunity uh, to follow that uh, that historic uh, first ever test match in Barbados uh, of radio commentary and live television commentary because the live television commentary had been introduced in the Caribbean in 1990. Uh, so we were certainly watching the action and we, we took it for granted that South Africa would have been able to pull it off because they looked a very competitive team. Andrew Hudson scored 100 uh, marking their return to test cricket in the first innings and uh, certainly they were well poised uh, to complete that victory. And I, I think what made us feel that the West Indies had no chance. Uh, you might recall as well, Dean, that was a test match boycotted yes, uh, by yes. the fans in Barbados because they were upset that one of their own, Anderson Cummins, was left out of the team and they picked Kenny Benjamin instead for his test debut. And there were many people in Barbados, particularly disillusioned with the, the governance of the game but by, by the West Indies Cricket Board of Control, as it was known at the time. So those heroic feats of Ambrose and Walsh in pulling the West Indies out of the fire to achieve that famous victory. And as they went around the ground for a lap of honour, there was hardly anyone in the stands to celebrate that victory. But we were certainly watching on television, listening on radio and celebrating that victory. Wow, and what a victory that was. I mean, it was astonishing. Ambrose, six for 34, and then Walsh, four wickets as well. So between the two of them, the, that very formidable opening partnership of Walsh and Ambrose, they cleaned South Africa up. I mean, it, it, I remember being at school. Well, I did my schooling in, in uh, well, just outside Cape Town in South Africa, and just, uh, you know, the, the shock and horror and disbelief and disappointment and sadness uh, of the South African supporters, you know, because obviously you know, they, they needed, I think it was less than 100 runs to win. And uh, Walsh and Ambrose made sure that that didn't happen. I think, to you know, the inexperience of South Africa showed in the sense that they didn't try and even rotate the strike. They, they, they you know, just got stuck in their shells and, and were shell-shocked. And then two years later, Fazir Kirtley Ambrose is at it again, playing a very instrument well uh, before that, 1993. I, I wouldn't imagine that you would have been in Australia Australia, maybe you were, I don't know, but 1993, January, Kirtley Ambrose in a spell of seven wickets for one run to end with seven for 25 against Australia. Whether you were there or not, what are your memories of that spell? You're right, I wasn't there, but I hadn't actually gotten involved to the level of commentary that I would have been someone traveling all the way to Australia. That would have come uh, four years later for my first tour uh, as, a, as a, someone covering the game in 1996 and 97. But yes, I. Uh, again, you, you watched every bit of the action on television and when you, you saw Ambrose in full cry in that test match in Perth. And it, it came after the West Indies had pulled off that uh, that 
incredible victory by just one run to keep the series alive in Adelaide. And there's always that image of Alan Border uh, slamming a ball into the dressing room floor because he had never before won a test series against Australia. And he was so very close as captain, just a couple of runs away from winning the match and to lose by one run. The West Indies had leveled the series and they had snatched all of the psychological advantage. And certainly Ambrose turned it on in the very first day of that Perth test match. And the West Indies went on to win inside three days to retain the Frank Worrell Trophy. Wow, what a memory that was. I do wish we'd had the ability to listen to it and to watch it all around the world as we do now. I would have been glued to my radio, I can tell you that. Uh, But we had to hear it through newspapers and uh, all sorts of things like that back in the day, or BBC World Service. Um, So, And then, Fazir, now... Uh, we get to uh, now. I suppose we better start focusing on uh, what is at hand and the the fact that uh, the West Indies have gone one 0 up in the series, uh, touring England in in very strange circumstances. Strange in the sense that there's no crowds or any atmosphere or vibes or anything that makes a cricket match special. But the West Indies played very very special cricket. But is there any? I, 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 let me put it to you this way. It seems to me that in terms of rivalry amongst the players, and uh, also in terms of the fans' perspective, the two series that make Test cricket come alive would be a Test series, Australia versus the West Indies, or, or vice versa, or the West Indies versus England. It just seems to bring the best out of the West Indies players and the best out of England and Australian players as well. When you when you talk about matches gone by, doesn't it? The uh, West Indies-Australia battles in the 1970s, right up to the early 1990s, and even with England as well. You're right on that score because, uh, and again, it has to do with our colonial experience as well because yeah. remember, like, like, like so many other parts of the world, including Zimbabwe, of course, and almost all African nations, uh, we were all once colonies of, of some some part of Europe, and as it turned out in our case, uh, colonies of, of Great Britain, and that that's why the game would have been introduced here uh, in the in the early 1800s and developed, and that's why we uh, we played our first Test match in 1928 and actually went to England uh, for our first tour unofficially in the year 1900. So so that connection would have always been there, and which is why for so many West Indies cricketers, it was a big deal. Uh, to take on England and they, they were certainly motivated uh, playing England and when you look at it now uh, the West Indies have always been very competitive have, have always upped their game uh, playing England the stats show that uh, many of the West Indies cricketers uh, their numbers improve when they're playing against England because there's that, that desire to prove yourself against a, a country that wants to rule you so there's, a, there's, so there's always that element of that to go to England and win a series is considered a tremendous achievement but I think there's even more admiration for Australia because the West Indies uh, took a long time to actually win a test series in Australia. That didn't happen until 1979-80 with that outstanding team that included the likes of the Richards and the great four fast bowlers, captained by Clive Lloyd and so on. But it's the contest between the West Indies and Australia. I mentioned very earlier, very much earlier, that 75-76 series where even though the West Indies lost 5-1, you sense the intensity of the contest, the fast bowling of Lillian Thompson on one hand and holding on Roberts on the other hand, the tremendous batting of, of, of the West Indies stars, Richards, Kali Charan, Rowe, Clive Lloyd. And on the other hand, you had the Chapels leading the way, Ian Redpath, 
with three hundreds in that series. But you you identified Australian cricket as gritty, as tough, as intense, and and it really made from some electrifying cricket. So yes, there, there's always that that extra edge when we talk about West Indies versus England and West Indies versus Australia. I'd like you to, to um, if you possibly can, I, I want you to tell me the differences between, and this is just your opinion, of course, the, 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 the styles of captaincy by, for example, when you started watching, I suppose Clive Lloyd would have been involved, then Viv Richards, uh, Richie Richardson, or Sir Viv Richards, Sir Vivian Richards, Sir Richie Richardson, and then you had the, the, the likes of Brian Lara, Courtney Welsh, and I want, to, I want to focus on captains who actually captained the team for quite a few test matches, and now Jason Holder. Do they all have, and did they had, uh, did they have their own unique styles, and their different styles of captaining the West Indies? I think they were all different in, in many ways because you're never going to have everyone with an exact clone of, of the other. Uh, some of them are more fortunate. They might have been blessed with greater resources and better quality players in their teams. Others were able to uh, to, to, to make gold out of straw in, in some cases because of their ability as leaders. And I think in the case of Jason Holder, as we're talking about the existing situation, uh, Holder has, uh, was thrown as at the deep end, as many may recall. Uh, he was made captain of the West Indies. Uh, before the World Cup of 2015, he was just yeah. 23 years of age. He really hadn't established himself fully in the West Indies team. And it was in the midst of an extremely difficult period and a prolonged period of difficulty for West Indies cricket. And, and, and many people felt for years that he wasn't worth his place in the team, that he wasn't deserving of being captain. But look at his situation now where he's considered an inspirational leader. And I think he's been able to achieve that by gaining the confidence of his players by his own performances, by the way he carries himself as a captain. Uh, he, he's not someone who's seen as aggressive and confrontational. In contrast to someone like a Viv Richards, for example, who, who captained in the, in the way that he batted. He was always in your face. He was always someone who was very intense. He took over from a Clive Lloyd, who was seen as very much the father figure of that era, who molded the, the, the West Indies team that would become the great dominating force for the next 15 to 20 years. So, so, so Lloyd... Was a more of a under, an understated sort of personality. Richard's more aggressive. Richie Richardson, uh, who followed him, uh, even though they were both from the island of Antigua, Richie Richardson was much more laid back. Uh, Courtney Walsh, uh, someone uh, who really gave off his give off his best, gave off his all. But again, much like Richie Richardson, wasn't that demonstrative uh, type of individual. So you have a number of different personalities along the way. Brian Lara, of course, was seen by many to be someone groomed for the West Indies captaincy. But in, in many cases, when it came to Lara, he almost wanted to do too many different things as captain because he was such an innovative personality. He was such an innovative batsman. He wanted to do the same thing as a captain in the field. Sometimes it didn't work out. And when, when you look at his record as a captain, at, certainly in test cricket, it wasn't a particularly good one. Lots of test matches lost. And it wasn't just about the fact that he didn't have too many quality players sometimes because he didn't really have that that ability to bring the best out of his players it, it often resulted in, in the, the results that kept the West Indies struggling so there are many different types of personalities along the way and I would say that Holder has grown into the job over five years to the point now where he's very comfortable with what is essentially his team 
Yes, it is his team, and I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, I, I must, I, I have to be honest with you. There were many people who thought that Jason Holder, as you rightly say, was maybe thrown into the deep end a bit early, and uh, he didn't, he didn't value, or he didn't necessarily deserve to be there. I must admit, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Jason Holder, and I, I was concerned that perhaps the uh, continued uh, battering that the West Indies received at the hands of of many players when he started his captaincy. I was afraid it might have broken Holder, but I don't think it has. I think in his own quiet way, just the way that he leads from, I think he's very underrated as a player. Uh, and I think that uh, the way that he leads from the front is now actually beginning to to eventually maybe uh, get the West Indies back on track. I mean, you can't really say that they're back on track after one performance. Uh, what you would uh, say is that they maybe were beginning to show signs should they win the series. So... Realistically speaking, Fazir, do you think it is possible for the West Indies to continue with that momentum and to win this series, even if it is 2-1 in England? I think it is possible. Um, I'll be honest and say at the start of the series, I picked England to win 2-1 because I felt that uh, they, they would have, have been far more familiar with the conditions and eventually prevailed. And uh, I, I still have that at the back of my mind. Obviously, it's the legacy of the West Indies having lost so many test matches and frittered away so many advantageous positions over the better part of uh, 25 years. Uh, so it, it, it's that sort of situation is still very much in my mind, but uh, the, the way they fought and, and, and really uh, contradicted all expectations by winning that first test match, they, they've got every chance of clinching the series and that would be a, an historic achievement and, and a deserved one for Holder the first time in 32 years. But I, I still have that nagging feeling at the back of my mind that England with Joe Root coming back, with Stuart Broad surely going to be picked uh, for the remainder of the series that they're going to be far more potent. Uh, they were probably a bit complacent again, taking on uh, the West Indies, even though when you look at the record going back to 2017 and that famous victory at Headingley, of the last six test matches against England, the West Indies have won four, including the, those uh, really tremendous wins uh, in the Caribbean last year when they reclaimed the Wisdom Trophy. So I still have that nagging concern at the back of my mind that the inconsistencies will crop up again in the, in the coming test matches at Old Trafford in Manchester and, and, and therefore there's that feeling in my mind that England may still be able to bounce back but I think from what we've seen in the first test match the West Indies have their, probably their best chance uh, in, in more than 30 years uh, to win a test series in England I wonder how they're going to I mean as you right to say Stuart Broad surely will be returning and, and it's the it's the line and length that he bowls so he doesn't have the pace of a Mark Wood or Joffre Archer I would imagine that they may leave uh, Mark Wood out to accommodate Stuart Broad Joe Denley coming in for Joe Root you would I beg your pardon another way around Joe Root coming in for Joe Denley my apologies <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the West Indies batsmen will negate the the steeliness that Stuart Broad brings to the side because even when he's not bowling particularly well there's something about him isn't he that big six foot six frame of his and and the the way that he the intimidation that he has looking at you as a batsman um, and then when he starts to get the ball in right areas he's a very difficult customer to cope with isn't he he is, and, and, and that, that is going to be a factor. I think the West Indies, though, uh, they may not necessarily be overawed uh, by a Stuart Broad because uh, they, they'll draw parallels to what happened in the Caribbean in 2019 when Broad was actually dropped for the first Test match in Barbados. Again, it seemed to be complacency uh, by England that yeah. they left him out and that it backfired on them. They lost the Test match by over 300 runs. 
And then when Broad was brought back for the second test match in Antigua on, an, on another uh, juicy pitch, uh, it actually turned out to be a 10-wicket win uh, for the West Indies. Uh, so in, in that case, Broad wasn't able to make a difference. And I'm sure the West Indies will be telling themselves their captain, Jason Holder, coach Phil Simmons, uh, they'll be reminding them of that experience and telling them that, look, if they play with the same intensity and even up their game, uh, they've got a fantastic chance, whether it's Stuart Broad, whether it's Drew Root, whether it's anybody else, uh, because they're already one up in the series and have the chance to close it out in the next match. So you've grown up uh, watching Test Match Cricket, be it on television or even live at the grounds. An incredibly vibrant, wonderful, I, I certainly wish I could have been a part of that. The atmosphere that, you know, that used to be at Test Venues was very, very special. Loud music um, booming through sound systems, people being incredibly happy and, and not only appreciating the cricket, which obviously was first and foremost, but generally speaking, appreciating life. Um, so none of that, none of these ingredients are going to be involved in this test series. In England, you, you've got the constant chant of Bahami Army, Bahami Army, and, and even a very big, I'm sure, uh, contingent, uh, contingency of West Indian supporters, which will add their own voice, which just makes it incredibly uh, attractive. None of that is going to be there. Do you think, I mean, do you miss it, first of all? And I wonder how much of a part that has to play from a player's perspective. If, if somebody were to do something very special, Jason Holder maybe get a, a six for and score a hundred, which would be wonderful, you know, or anything of that nature. And there's nobody there to, to cheer or even give a few boos. How much gloss, in your opinion, does that take off that special achievement? I think it takes quite a bit of, uh, at the end of the day, when we look back on the scorebook and the records and, and so on, those numbers will be there. That's never going to change. That That's there uh, for all time. Uh, but the, the actual moment, the actual experience, I think it, what, what we're experiencing right now uh, through, throughout the world, even with the, the, the resumption of, of uh, European League football in Spain and Italy and, of course, the English Premier League, which is hugely popular all over the world, that even when they pipe in the artificial sound and, and yeah, and create the impression as if they're, they're crowds there as they were doing for the first test match in Southampton with the constant murmuring and buzz of a non-existent crowd. That when you see the images of the empty seats and the empty stands, there's a hollow feeling to it all. But eventually you get caught up in the cricket itself and yeah. you're not, never uh, too, too fussed about the fact that the stands are empty. But I'm sure for the players as well it matters because it matters uh, when you've got the, the, a real crowd in place and they're cheering or they're jeering and, and the case might be because sometimes players are hugely motivated by a crowd that's against them. Uh, but uh, as we are seeing, that's not happening in England now. Uh, for, for the West Indies, they've sadly grown accustomed to playing cricket in front of near deserted grounds, even in the Caribbean, but as cricket because our results have been so poor for so long that many people have turned off from the game. They don't follow the game anymore. They don't attend uh, international cricket in the Caribbean anymore. So uh, near-empty stands are not unusual uh, for West Indies fans, but going to England, it certainly is strange. You take it for granted that the grounds would be absolutely packed and there'd be a real buzz uh, of excitement, uh, whichever venue you're at. So, so that is certainly taking away uh, from the experience, and I'm sure the players on both sides will miss that as well. Absolutely. Uh, barring any injuries, Fazir, do you foresee any changes for the West Indies or do you think they'll be happy to go with, with what they had in the first Test match? Well, unless it, it turns out to be a, a very dry pitch and a potential raging turner uh, that could see Rakeem Cornwall being introduced into the eleven to, to supplement the bowling of a Roston Chase or in fact be the frontline spinner, 
I, I don't see any changes. Uh, the only concern, I think, would be John Campbell, who was hit on the toe when batting and in the midst of that early collapse and return, uh, hit the winning run. Whether or not he'll recover in time and be fully fit uh, to play, if he doesn't, they'll have to probably reshuffle the batting lineup. Maybe Shea Hope might be promoted uh, up the order, and someone else will be slot- slotted in to the middle order the, to complete the eleven. But once everyone is fit, and if the pitch does offer assistance to the fast bowlers, I don't see any changes to the eleven. Isn't there an opener, Joshua? Uh, his second name escapes me. I, uh, his first name is Joshua, who's an opening batsman. Could that Joshua not? De Silva. Yes, Joshua De Silva. Could it? Could that not maybe just be a straight swap for Joshua De Silva coming in for John Campbell? Should he not be ready? Well, he's not an opening batsman. He's a wicketkeeper batsman. Play uh, bats down ah, in, in the right. middle order. So, but yes. uh, the fact that he got that hundred in the trial match, uh, the only player to do so in that rain affected fixture, uh, and someone in that in that expanded training squad, which is necessary in this biosecure environment, was uh, taken advantage of the opportunities that he got so far. That might be a consideration, uh, and also uh, because he. Keeps as well that that would be an additional element indeed if something untoward would happen to Shane Dowridge. But I think they'll be keeping all their options open at the moment. Uh, we're just about 24 hours away uh, from the start of uh, that test match, so I would suspect that by now, even as we're speaking, uh, they would have some idea as to who's uh, fit, who's not, whether Campbell has recovered well enough, and they'll be looking at their options uh, whether or not it may include a Joshua De Silva for a test debut. Fazir Mohammed, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for getting up so early for listeners who don't know. He woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning just to uh, facilitate this interview. That is what you call a gentleman. Um, I would imagine as we conclude, Fazir, you are a bit disappointed, very disappointed perhaps, not to be in, in England and uh, part of one of the radio commentary teams there or even doing a bit of television work, or are you happy to be watching it from the, the comfort of your, your lounge? I'm comfortable being at home, but I would dearly love to be involved in actual commentary. Dean, as you know, it's an addictive environment. You love it, you enjoy it. As with anyone else, when you do something you love, you don't really consider it to be work. And I've been privileged to have this opportunity going way back, as I mentioned, till 1992, until the present time. And even though, again, because the the options might be limited because of the fact that I never played the game internationally, and now because of the biosecure challenges which would have required having to be in a secure environment for almost a month and then even coming back home to Trinidad and Tobago would have been a challenge because all borders remain sealed, remain closed uh, because of concerns of, of, of COVID-19 uh, really establishing a foothold here but uh, the fact that I'm not involved uh, as part of the BBC Test Match special team is quite disappointing because it's an environment that, that you really enjoy talking about the game that talking about many different things around the game. There's so much to the history of cricket that you can weave into the discussion, even as you're describing the action and so on. So, yeah, I do, I do miss it, but I, I appreciate that there, there are more important things happening right now, greater priorities that have to be dealt with when it comes to health and welfare and life and livelihood right around the world. So you just have to put it in, in perspective. Well, we've seen Graham Gooch score one of the better hundreds against the West Indies back in 1991. We saw Brian Lara score uh, 375 and 400 against the West Indies in 1994 and 2004, respectively. We saw Kirtley Ambrose single-handedly almost dismiss England for 46 in 1994. We saw... 
England uh, defeat the West Indies uh, in virtually no time at Headingley back in 2000. The history, the rivalry between these two teams goes back many, many years. And although myself and Fazir Mohammed will not be there to, to cover it, but uh, what we do as cricket lovers and everybody else who listens to this podcast is that we remember and we talk and we appreciate. Once again, Fazir, I would just like to take this opportunity to thank you so much for being on the Dean at Stumps podcast. It really does mean a lot to many people around the world. And I'm really privileged uh, again, Dean. And, and thank you very much for the opportunity to share my thoughts on, on the game with your huge audience. You've been listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. It's been great uh, being with you and we'll be back again uh, pretty soon with uh, another very special guest. But until then, it's goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. podcast.